You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. How you guys doing? Okay, so um, just let you know, the, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we'll get you a physical Bible in your hand, or if you don't use these, you can open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Your own Bible, your phone Bible, whatever, but we have some Bibles here. We'll be flipping throughout 1 Corinthians and all over the Bible today. But I, I want to warn you before we get started that the first half of this message is very depressing. So some of you are already depressed. It's Thanksgiving, you're like, bring it on. Like, I'm already there. I don't really care. Um, but hopefully the second half isn't as depressing. But the first half uh, is, today we're going to, um, today is the start of Advent, uh, where the, uh, the church, the church calendar uh, celebrates the season of Advent. The season of Advent parallels with Christmas with one huge difference. In the church calendar, you don't really celebrate Christmas until Christmas. And I know our... Um, traditional holiday of Christmas, we start like mid-November and it keeps getting pushed back. Like October, uh, after, thank, after Halloween, we start celebrating Christmas. But in the church calendar, you don't actually celebrate Christmas until uh, Christmas Day. What you do from now until Christmas Day is you enter into a time of waiting. You enter into a time of waiting like Israel waited for their promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer. So it's like in solidarity in waiting with Israel for the promised redeemer. But what it also does for the Christian is it's waiting for the return of Christ. But Christ, because Christ has died, Christ has risen and Christ is coming again. And so we enter into a period of waiting. Now, we're not doing a formal Advent series this year. Though I think finishing up the book of 1 Corinthians during Advent is, is fitting. Because in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes into the afterlife. Paul goes into a season of talking about what happens when we die. And what are we waiting for as the followers of Jesus? What are we waiting for? Um, and hoping in, in Christ's return. And so we're going to start a, a series, a three-week series on the afterlife. Today, I want to talk about death. And that's why I said it's depressing for the first couple minutes. And it should be. Death is depressing. Um, so let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we'll start in verse um, 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. I'm going to read to verse 34. Pastor Dave Daly taught on verses 1 through uh, 11 last week on the gospel, things that we're to be reminded of, and then Paul takes that and runs with it in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 12 through um, through 34 this morning. Let me read and we'll pray. And I'm gonna read, I'm gonna explain a little things too so if you guys are lost in this, you'll, you'll get a little bit of understanding. Verse 12. But if, it, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and it was preached to them because Paul had just preached that. He said, this is what I preached to there and you guys believed. You guys remember that. Uh, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. There's some people in the church that were going around. And I, at this point I say, like, there's certain things that I'm like, thank you, God, for Corinth. They were so screwed up that Paul had a right about all these great things we would never have unless the church was that screwed up. Like, because the church didn't love, we have the love chapter. Like, if they loved, he would never have written about it. 
It's like, oh, you guys keep loving. You're like, well, how did they love? Like, we don't know. They didn't love, and so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Who doesn't believe in the resurrection? They didn't. So Paul has to write this beautiful chapter on resurrection. Anyway, sorry, tangent. It's going back to this. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, he's getting really excited here. He's going to go off on them. Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, uh, him if in fact, if, I'm sorry, if he did not raise him, Christ from the dead, but he did, let me start over. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Verse 15. I, kept, I was moving around, I was getting excited, and I need my glasses, sorry. But more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. There you go. There it is. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, and this is what Advent is about, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When Christ hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, uh, the kingdom of God to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26 is what I want to talk about today. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who have been baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we, we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God I say this to your shame. That's the text that we will try to look at this morning, if I can talk this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and its promise of eternal life that begins now. And I ask God in our time this morning, I pray that you would tune our hearts to yours, that you would give us faith where we need faith, that you would challenge us where we're um, where, where we're, we don't believe the right things about 
who we are in you and what you've come to do to set the world right. I know that there are a lot of us in here who, um, in the face of the holidays, with Thanksgiving and Christmas approaching, dealing with the death of people that we've loved in the past is difficult. And even disappointment around these holidays fills our hearts as well. And so I pray, Christ, that you would be our comfort, that you would be our hope, that you would fill us with the resolve of heaven. And I pray to God that you would anoint me and use me this morning. I want to communicate your, your truth um, accurately and with all the passion um, that's found um, in your word. So bless us as we look to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So what Paul is saying here, and what the scriptures proclaim, is that death is an enemy. Period. Death is an enemy. I know, I know we all say nice things at funerals. I've been to many funerals. I've been to many funerals where the casket is far too small. And we say nice things, like how their soul is in heaven and they are smiling down upon us. We comfort ourselves with that they are in a better place, but that is not the language uses when it talks about death. When the Bible talks about death, it uses military language, like enemy and destruction and victory. The scriptures talk about death as the ultimate enemy of God, the last enemy of God that must be defeated. And so when Paul talks about death, he talks about it as an enemy. It's the last enemy of God, and God must defeat death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, we just read this. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it's okay to be angry at funerals. It's okay to show up to a funeral and say, I'm just so angry. It's okay to be to, to mourn at funerals. It's okay to weep at funerals. It's okay to be angry around the holidays when we miss our loved ones who have died. It's okay to be sad. Death is not our friend. Death is not a part of the circle of life. Death is an intruder. Death is not natural. As one of my favorite systematic theologians puts it, death is not natural. It is not right. And in a world created by God, it is something that ought not to be. It is an enemy, something that Christ will finally destroy. When we typically talk about death, we talk about it in two ways. We either, the first way we talk about death, or one of the ways we talk about death, is that we deny death. We don't like to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. It might even be uncomfortable for you right now because I'm talking about death. It's impolite in many ways. Like if you're around a Thanksgiving dinner and you start talking about death, people are like, it's Thanksgiving. Let's not talk about death. We don't like usually to deal with death. And because of our, the way that we live in our modern world, death happens to people in hospitals. Death happens to people under sedation. Death happens to people that are hooked up to machines. They die somewhere else and someone else buries them. And oftentimes before they bury them, they go to morticians and the morticians beautify them and make them look alive so we can say goodbye to them one last time. We don't really confront death. And when we see death, it might make us sick to our stomach. 
We don't like dealing with death, so we deny it and we say, don't talk about when you're going to die. Don't talk about death. It's morbid. That's one way a lot of us deal with death. The other way is that we try to befriend death. We embrace death like it's a natural part of life. We look through death, we look at death through the worldview of the Lion King. It's a circle of life. And that's what we think. Well, death is just a natural part of living. Everyone dies, so death is okay. Steve Jobs, um, his famous commencement address at Stanford in 2005, he said something like this when he said this. He said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. Yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Well, he's wrong there, but I don't want to argue. (laughs) And that, he says, is as it should be. Listen, this is what he says. Because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old and makes way for the new. Right now, the new is you, speaking of these graduates. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. I think that quote is actually quite good, but it comes from a worldview that says death is as natural as living. We are all a part of it, so we might as well embrace it. Death is the way that the universe renews itself. You might have that idea of death. You might have looked at death like it's just part of life. It's just what happens when we die. Or, you know, it happens at the end of our life. But at the end of his biography, if you've not read Steve Jobs' biography, uh, author Walter Isaacson tells of how uh, Jobs reflects on death again. And this is how the book ends. Now, if you haven't read it, you've had a couple years, so it's on you. So I'm just going to read it. This is how the book ends. One sunny afternoon, when he was, wasn't feeling well, Jobs sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on death. He talked about how his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that, As he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your your consciousness endures. He fell silent for a long time. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch, he said. Click, and you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. I love that. I might have cried at the end of that book. I don't know. I love that because it's like Jobs had this realiza- uh, Steve Jobs had this realization that the whole time he's been creating and innovating, he has subconsciously been fighting against death. He has been subconsciously fighting against everything just going dark and it's, it's, it's over with. See, even if you try to befriend death, 
and tell yourself that it's a part of the circle of life. Deep down, there's something so frustrating about death, so unnatural about death that you fight it, even if you fight it subconsciously. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of letters to his friend Sheldon Van Nuken. I'm probably saying that horribly wrong. He was conversing with Sheldon back and forth in letters and eventually Sheldon became a believer. And one of his letters, C.S. Lewis talks about death. He's talking about the end of our time and he says this. He says, if you are really a product of, materialistic, of a materialistic universe, how is it you don't feel at home there? Do fish complain of the sea being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Notice how we are perpetually surprised at time. And what he means by time, he means how fast it goes and when it ends, our death. He says, why? Unless indeed there is something about us that is not temporal. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that the reason humanity has such a hard time with time and that time flies, that time passes, that people grow up right before your eyes and you're like, time is so crazy and how it ultimately ends in death and we just don't get it. We're continually perplexed by time. He logically concludes it's because we were not built for it. We were created, we were built to last. We were created to be eternal. And we all know this. This is why Steve Jobs, as he was reflecting on his death, about to enter into his own death, wanted something of himself to keep going. The author, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity into the human heart. Death is not natural. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. This is why we are disappointed by death. And not just disappointed by death, most of us live in perpetual disappointment about life. And this is heightened during the holidays for some of us. Married couples might not admit it. You might not get a married couple to admit it. But marriage can and oftentimes is very disappointing. You marry the person of your dreams and it turns out throughout your marriage to be great, but other times it turns out to be very disappointing. Your dream job will disappoint you. You will get a call one day and you move, you'll move your life to another city because you just landed your dream job and it will disappoint you. Your physical body will disappoint you when it, it won't do what you want it to do anymore. The perfect meal will disappoint you when the next day you wake up regretting dessert. The best things in life disappoint us. And why is this? Why do all these things disappoint us? Because you were built for perfection. You were built for eternality. But we live in a broken and a fragmented world. We live in a body that's dying. We live in a world that seems filled with decay and brokenness and injustice and even death. And how did death enter our world? Death entered the world through human rebellion. The rejection of God's perfect way and rejection of God's perfect peace, the rejection of the shalom of God, it entered in because all of us wanting to go our own way, all of us sinning against even our own conscience, even our own morals that we set up, we break. Paul said this in Romans chapter five, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people 
because all sinned. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says that Adam is the human representative. All of humanity identifies with him. He sinned, we sin. And sin brings death. See, sin and death are intruders. They are not the way things are supposed to be. Death is not natural, but death is inevitable. Because of our sharing in the humanity and the sinfulness of our first parents, all have sinned and all of us are destined to die. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) This is why the resurrection is so important. This is why Paul is so angry that some people in the church are saying, well, there's not really a resurrection. Paul's like, are you kidding me? The resurrection pins all the hopes of the Christian faith upon it. It is the foundation. Christianity has always been a counterculture, always. And the foundation of that counterculture is the resurrection. Is that you killed our Lord, but he rose from the dead. And you can kill me, but I too will rise. The resurrection is everything to the Christian story. There were some people in the church in Corinth that were denying the resurrection. Verse 12 says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, a little backstory here. To the Greek mind, in which the, the, that was the context of this Corinthian church, to the Greek mind, to the average Corinthian, the resurrection was offensive. To think about the resurrection it offended them. And the reason why it offended them was because they had a worldview that said that our souls were good Our spirits were good, but our bodies are bad. Jesus saves our souls and our bodies rot in the ground and we cannot wait to shed our bodies. When we die, we float to heaven and that's it. We shed our earth suits and the important parts of us, our eternal souls go to be with God. That's what they said. So they were teaching that there's no resurrection. Your body is in the ground, your soul gets to go to be with God, and you're forever happy. Now, Jesus was the only rare case of the resurrection, but we just go to God. And this is where Paul gets angry, because they were devaluing the resurrection. And by devaluing the resurrection, they stripped Jesus of his victory over sin and death, they stripped God of his plan for the world, and they stripped themselves of what it means to be human. Let me say that again. By devaluing the resurrection, you strip Jesus of his victory over sin and death, you strip God of his plan for the world, and you strip humanity of what it means to be human. Let me explain this. Before I do, let me explain what Paul means when he talks about resurrection. Here's what resurrection means. Resurrection in the first century meant Someone physically, thoroughly dead, becoming physically, thoroughly alive again, not simply surviving or entering into a purely spiritual world. Meaning someone had died, completely dead, and their body being brought back to life. Resurrection denoted a new embodied life which would follow whatever life after death there might be. Resurrection was, by definition, not the existence into which someone might go immediately upon death. When Jesus was immediately dead, his body was still in the grave for three days. It is not an embodied heavenly life. It is a further stage beyond all that. It was not a redescription or redefinition of death. It was death's 
reversal. So Jesus dies and his body goes into a tomb, and, but he has, he's still there. The, uh, the scriptures say, and, and Peter says that, that Jesus went to uh, Sheol. Jesus went down and he let the captives free. He's like, okay, I've released all of us. Let's all go to paradise. And then he gets his body back. And he re-enters his body and his body is a resurrected body. And Paul says that he is the first fruits, meaning right around springtime, and in California it happens, I'm, I'm from the valley of California in Bakersfield and so we had really, really hot summers, like, like hellish hot, like too hot, and then really cold winters. I mean, not like back east cold, but cold for California. And every spring there would be a, a couple blades of grass that shoot up or uh, a tree that starts to blossom. And when that tree starts to blossom, it's like the first fruit, you know, like spring's coming and the rest of the tree is gonna blossom as well. The rest of the grass is gonna grow. Jesus was the first fruit. He's that first bud of resurrection life. And so Christ has been raised from the dead. Resurrection means a corpse that comes back to life. This is all very important, just stick with me. Again, there, this was offensive because first off, dead people stay dead. That was offensive to them because they're like, okay, all medical evidence and all the observable world knows that the dead people stay dead. So it was offensive in that way. But it was also offensive to them because the body was something everyone wanted to get away from. The body was something everyone wanted to shed. The soul is the only thing that mattered to them. The body was just a shell. So Paul says that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And then he gets angry. He says, if Christ is not raised, this is what he says. Verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, he gives you implications of if Christ has not been raised. And this is what he says. If Christ has not been raised, verse 13, Jesus is dead. He's still in the tomb or somewhere. He's not alive. Verse 14, your faith in the gospel is useless. Verse 15, and we are liars. Verse 16, and your faith is empty. Verse 17, oh, and you're dead in your sins. Verse 18, your loved ones are dead and without hope. And verse 19, we are the most sorry group of people alive. <laughs> That's what he says. It's like, okay, you're saying there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus is dead. I'm a liar. Our faith is dead. We're to be pitied. And people that have died before us, that get martyred. Well, they're dead. They're gone. They're lost. We should be pitied people. If the resurrection is not real, then let's just go home. Paul says this doesn't matter. None of this matters. But he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you don't believe me, go ask someone. Because they were eyewitnesses. He actually names them earlier. He appeared to this person, that person. Just go ask them. They're still alive. This is what Paul's saying. There's eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. Tim Keller, author of um, best-selling book, Reason for God, he says this in his book. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. He writes, I usually respond this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he, of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt who heard reports of the resurrection. They knew that if this was true, it meant that we can't live any, our, our lives any way we want. 
It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything, not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. I think we fall into the false belief that the resurrection was the extra point to the touchdown of the cross. It's the football season, football season, so I'll use that analogy. Like the cross was the touchdown and the resurrection is like the extra point. My wife doesn't particularly like watching football and she tunes out whenever it's on. But sometimes she's either like, you know, like reading or like cooking or doing something around. And, but sometimes she'll tune in and make comments about why she doesn't like it. <laughs> so she's tuning in, she's like, why that? That's so dumb. And it's just, good. and I just normally just like, oh, whatever. Um, but the extra point kills her. She hates the extra point. Every time they line up for the extra point, she says, why do they do that? Who's going to miss the extra point? I'm like, they, they do miss the extra point. Look, they should get rid of the extra point, just give them it and get the game over with already. I'm like, okay, calm down. This is, this bugs you. Like the extra, that's, sometimes we think that about the resurrection. We think the cross is the touchdown and the resurrection is the obligatory extra point. This is not true. Without the resurrection, everything falls apart. And this is what Paul is saying. But it's important to know that Paul isn't necessarily arguing Jesus' resurrection here. If you remember from last week, they already accepted Jesus' resurrection. They already believed it. They said, let me remind you of the, the, the of things of first importance. Christ died. Christ was raised. We know he was raised. You've believed it. You guys received it. You already believe in the resurrection. Paul isn't arguing Jesus' resurrection. He was arguing their resurrection. He's arguing our resurrection. That's the point. Why is our resurrection so important? Meaning, this is what he means. Why does when we die, we get buried or we're taking back to earth, or whatever happens. I mean, a lot of things can happen in the way that we die. When our lives, our physical bodies return to the earth, whether you're lost at sea, or you're completely um, annihilated in a fire, or something like that. Our bodies return to the earth. Why is it important that we be physically raised up and brought to life again? Why is that important? It's important because our bodies matter. Let me ask you what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? It means that you have a body and it means that you have a spirit. You're not human without both of those things. A human is not a body without a spirit, nor is it a spirit without a body. In the creation narrative, it goes something like this. And this is what it means to be human. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed a man out from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now this is kind of flat in our English translations, but basically what was going on here in, in beautiful poet, poetic Hebraic language is that God formed from, from the material earth, our material bodies, and he breathed, that word literally means wind or spirit. He placed in a spirit and it's the joining of those two things, body and spirit, that gives us a living being, or that word is translated soul. It's our bodies and our spirits together that make us humanity. We're not a human until both of those are brought together. As one writer wrote in his book on heaven, Adam was not a living human being 
until he had both material, physical, and immaterial, spiritual components. Thus, the essence of humanity is not just spirit, but spirit joined with body. Your body does not merely house the real you. It is as much a part of you as your spirit is. What it means to be human is body and spirit. And a body without a spirit is not how you were created, and a spirit without a body is not how you were created. Christ redeemed our souls and will one day completely, completely redeem our physical bodies. And he will do this by what is called a resurrection from the dead. This is how he created us. And we won't be completely redeemed until he grabs our spirit that's been redeemed and our body that has been redeemed and he joins them together. Now the question might be, your question might be, it might come up, that what will happen then immediately after we die? When our body is in the ground, what happens when we die? And when we get our new bodies, what do our new bodies look like? And when will we get them again? When does that happen? When is all, all this stuff going down? That's next week. It's really crazy. <laughs> but here's what you need to know right now. And you can read ahead. I mean, you have your own Bible. You can read, actually read ahead. But and Paul will go into it. Like, this is, this is what our new bodies will look like. But this is what's important right now. And this is what Paul wants to get across. Death is God's enemy. And Jesus destroyed it. And not just destroyed it, but reversed its effects. Death has to be destroyed. And the way that that death is destroyed is through the resurrection. Paul will say this at the end of this chapter. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Paul is taunting death here. He's like, death? What? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to give me? What are you going to do? Like, it's like, he's taunting it. It's like, what can you do to me? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why this is important is because what we believe about the future impacts how we live today. What we believe about the future affects how we live in the present. And this is why Paul writes in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, he uses this quote, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If we do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, we will live for right now. We will live for the immediate. He goes on, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. You know what he's saying here? He's, he's saying that because they don't believe their physical bodies have a future, they're destroying their physical bodies in the present. They're living for today. They're living for the immediate. They're spending all their money on pleasure. They give their bodies over to sin and sex because they think that their bodies don't matter to God and they should indulge in every pleasure they can right now. And it's drawing them into sin because they don't believe that their body is good and they don't believe that the earth has a future. I told you that by devaluing the resurrection, you're denying being human. And the reason why that's true is in order for you to be human, God has to restore everything back to the way he made it. 
And the way he made you was with a body and a spirit and he will raise up your body one day. And he will renew this earth one day. If there is no resurrection, there is no need to go to the TL and minister door to door. It's really stupid too if there's no resurrection because the body doesn't matter. All you need to do then is just go door to door and just tell them the gospel and that's it. But if the resurrection is true, then their bodies matter. And what they eat matters and what we eat matters and our city matters and, our, and, this, and everything that we live in matters because Christ has broken in and redeemed it all and will one day make it all new. The way that God created the universe, the way that God created the world, the way that God created our bodies all matter. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying he's giving life to all of those things once again. If you fail to realize that the resur- what the resurrection means, we won't think that our life, that life only consists of what we see. And that's not true. And T. Wright writes, the message of the resurrection is that this present world matters. That the problems and the pains of this present world matter. That the living God has made a bridgehead into this present world with his healing and all-conquering love. And that in the name of this strong love, all the evils, all the injustices, and all the pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won the day. That is why we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Make no bones about it. Easter day was the first great answer to that prayer. This is why we who celebrate Easter do so with material things, water, bread, and wine at Eucharist. Easter, the resurrection, is about the living God claiming the world of space, time, and matter as his own. That is why Christians celebrate it with candles and flowers and incense and processions and banner and above all music. The world of creation has been reclaimed by the living and healing God. Your body, your physical body and your soul matter to God. And Christ, what Christ has done is through his death and his resurrection redeemed our lives And what's in store for us, guys, this is what we're going to talk about the next couple weeks. What's in store for us is insane. A lot of you guys might think that Christianity has a really horrible way of viewing the afterlife. It's like floating in a cloud with a harp. It's like being disembodied and whatever. Or you might have this whack idea that everyone's going to get this, this new body that looks completely different and like everyone looks like a movie star or something. It's like, I can't wait to get a new body. Like, no, your body, it's gonna be your body, but it's gonna be renewed, completely renewed. What's in store for us in our future is joining with God as he makes all things new. Let's pray. I thank you for your promise, the promise of your word, the promise of a renewal of heaven and earth, the renewal of our own lives, our own bodies. But more than anything, God, I thank you that you've conquered death, that for us, the Christian, the follower of Jesus, as we look at death, we can look at it with complete sobriety, knowing that it is horrible. 
It's an enemy. Death is depressing. Death makes us angry. Death makes us sad. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory in Jesus Christ and you overcame death. You beat it. You came back from it. And with you, all of us as well. When you rose from the dead, we did too. Thank you that we can identify with you, Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Thank you, God, for your renewal. In Jesus' name, amen.